You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Occasionally on Sunday evenings, I will, for our family worship time with the kids, I will review the content of Sunday morning's message. That allows me to do two things. To see if they're paying attention, which is not as noble as the second goal, but the second goal is to reinforce what they heard during the morning worship service. So I asked my children last week after the message, I said, what is an Epicurean? Can anybody tell me what an Epicurean is? And Taryn hit it right on the head. She said, an Epicurean is somebody who denies that there is a creator and believes that uh, there is nothing supernatural, no miracles. Everything is naturalistic. Everything can be explained in terms of processes and particles. And uh, they live for pleasure. She, she hit all of that. So I said, great, what is a Stoic? And this was a little bit more difficult for her, but she managed to get out that a Stoic is somebody who believes that God is in everything and everything is God and and we are on this one big cyclic or secular, cyclical, that's the word I was looking for. I just coined two more words for you this morning. <laughs> cyclical process and that the highest calling that we have is simply to submit ourselves to this God force that is in each one of us and to and to submit to the law of destiny. That was a Stoic. She, now, she didn't say all of that, but she was able to get most of it. And I said, well, who was called a... Or I asked her, what is a seed picker? And she explained what a seed picker is. Somebody who uh, takes other people's teachings and other people's philosophies and sort of does a hunt and peck and pulls them all together into their own little group of ideas. And who was called a seed picker, I asked. Paul, she said. Last question. Who called Paul a seed picker? She thought for a second. The esophagus. <laughs> now, if you were here last week, you know it's not the esophagus. It's the Areopagus. We're in Acts chapter 17, and you need to have your Bible open to Acts chapter 17. I suppose in one sense it was the esophagus that called Paul a seed picker. He is before the Areopagus, which is the high court of Athens in Greece. They are composed, or the Areopagus is composed, of Stoics and Epicurean philosophers, the elite of the elite in Athens in this intellectual capital, this bright shining light of scientific and philosophical discovery. And in terms that you and I would understand, intellectually speaking, this whole display in Acts 17 is a David versus Goliath. Here is the Apostle Paul who stands before all the intellectual elite of the elite, all the philosophers and the teachers at the world's most famous university. And in the eyes of a Greek, he is nothing but a Jew. Now, to a, to a Greek, you were either one of two things. Either you were a Greek or you were a barbarian. And the Greeks despised non-Greeks the same way that Jews despised non-Jews. And so in Paul's eyes, he is simply a seed picker, an idle babbler, they call him, up above verse 21. An idle babbler, a seed picker, somebody who has come into Athens with this incoherent group of ideas that he's teaching in the marketplaces. And the Apostle Paul then is brought before the Areopagus and all of these elite 
And they are thinking to themselves, we're going to let this idle babbler say his piece and then we're going to shred him here publicly before this high court and make him look like the idiot, the fool, the babbler that he is. And so the Apostle Paul has the opportunity to present truth to Epicureans and to Stoics. And as I told you last week, we live among Epicureans and Stoics, don't we? The Epicureans of our day are the evolutionists, the atheists, the agnostics who deny that there is a God and and simply explain everything in terms of the here and now. We live amongst particles and processes. We live in this big cosmos of chemicals and matter that is all governed and directed by random chance and natural processes and nothing guides it and nothing is in control of it and there is no God. There is no supernatural. There was no divine creation. Those are the Epicureans. The Stoics are the New Age pantheists who live among us who think that there is this God force in all of us and that we're all part of this God force and when you die you simply go to be part of the force and so you need to fulfill your destiny. Epicureans and Stoics. And the Epicureans of our day say we don't need God to explain anything. You have your religion and then you have your science and never the two shall meet. And if you you may believe in your religion, you may believe in your myths and your little theories and all of your little stuff that the Bible says, but it really has nothing to do with reality. It has nothing to do with the way things really are in truth. And if you want to believe that, and that works for you, that's good. But don't think that it's true, or so goes the wisdom of our age. And we can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul about how to share truth with Epicureans and Stoics. And so we're going to look at his message that he delivers as he preaches the gospel before the intellectual elites to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, to these university professors who deny the supernatural and deny the existence of God. And the message is in verses 22 through 31 of Acts chapter 17. I want you to follow along, and as we do, I I want to make just a couple of general observations about the message, and then we'll start looking at at the specific details. The first general observation is just sort of the the flow of the message. You'll notice that in verses 22 through 24, the Apostle Paul presents God as Creator. In verses 25 through 29, he presents God as Sustainer of all things. And in verses 30 and 31, he presents God as the Judge of all things. God as Creator, God as Sustainer, and God as Judge of all things. Now read those verses with me and let's you can see how he develops this. Verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. You see God as Creator there? He made the world and all things in it. Next, look at how the Apostle Paul presents God as sustainer of all things. Verse 25, Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He sustains our life and our breath. Verse 26, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist. God is sustainer. Even as some of your own poets have said, we are also His children. 
Verse 29, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image to be formed by the art and thought of man. God is the sustainer of all things. In Him we move and live and have our being. He gives to everything life and breath and all things. Not only is He the creator of all things, but He is the sustainer of all things. As Hebrews says, He upholds all things by the word of His power. Now look at God as the judge of all things. Verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. He is the judge of all things. So this, these three points, God is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and the judge of all things, those three points form the skeleton upon which Paul hangs the message of the gospel to these Athenians. Now you can think of those things logically, can't you? You can't begin with God as the judge of all things. You begin with God as the creator of all things. And if He is the creator of all things, then it logically follows if He's created all things, that He sustains all things that He has created. And if He is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, then it logically follows that He has every right to be the judge of all things. So it follows logically. It also follows follows chronologically. In the past, He created all things. Currently, He sustains all things. And in the future, He will what? Judge all things. Now, on those three things, God is creator, sustainer, and judge, hang all of the rest of His attributes. Let me flesh this out for you for a second. If God is the creator of all things, then we know He is a very intelligent God. We know that He is a personal God because He has created man in His own image to have a relationship with men, to be worshipped by, by men, and to relate with them. If He is the Creator, then He is also omnipotent. He simply spoke and everything came into existence. If He is the Creator, He is, he is wise. He is infinite in His intelligence. Friends, what kind of intellect does it take to fashion and form molecules, atoms, and even simple cells? That's a contradiction in terms because there's no such thing as a simple cell. Even the simplest of cells is more complex than all of the infrastructure of New York City. It reproduces itself. It copies information. Exchanges information. So this thing is a simple cell. What kind of an intellect does it take to hang the worlds in this cosmos, to populate this planet, and to create a system where we inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide, and all of the plants take in carbon dioxide and give off oxygen? And where the, the heat and the sun and the wind and the rain and everything serves to create to cause everything to grow and to prosper? What kind of an intellect does it take to create a system where His creatures are fed and nurtured and showered with rain and sunshine and goodness and joy? If He's the creator of all things, then all of that naturally follows. If He's the sustainer of all things, then He's a powerful God, isn't He? Nothing exists without Him, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. And by His grace and His mercy, He sustains and gives grace and gives good things to a creation that is in rebellion to Him. He's a good God, isn't He? And if God is the judge of all things, then He's holy, He's righteous, and He's the standard of all truth. In those three elements of what Paul has brought out to these Athenian philosophers, hang all of the attributes of God. Everything we know about God could be tagged underneath one of those three headings. Creator, sustainer, and judge. That's why I think the Apostle Paul chose that format. I want you to notice a second general observation about the message. 
Every word, every phrase, every sentence of what the Apostle Paul seems, says seems to be custom designed to assault the philosophy and the worldview and the thinking of the Epicureans and the Stoics. And you'll see this as we go through. It's like every phrase he utters takes a chip at their false thinking, their false worldview, their false ideas and ideologies. And friends, this is an important observation because you and I need to remember that there are times when it is appropriate for us to tip over other people's idols and to take the falsehood and the lies and to hold them up and shine the light of truth on them and show them to be just as idiotic and false as they are. And there's nothing wrong with, as you present the truth, to also confront the falsehood. Sometimes it's wrong for us to just say, well, you believe that, that's fine, let me tell you what I believe. Sometimes you need to take what somebody believes and assault it and tip over their idols so that they can see how, just how flimsy they are while you present the truth to them. So never be afraid of tipping over somebody's idols with the truth. That's what the Apostle Paul does. He doesn't seem, he doesn't seem afraid at all in the least of offending them. He takes them, actually takes them on head on. You and I present Christ, you and I present Christ sometimes as if he's a flavor of ice cream. I hear Christians talk and people preach the gospel and present the gospel and they talk about Christ as if he's a flavor of ice cream rather than insulin. Um, you can try Jesus. I tried Jesus and I liked him. You try Jesus. You like him too. And I know you may have other flavors of ice cream that you like. Epicurean ice cream, stoic ice cream, atheistic ice cream, evolutionary ice cream, agnostic ice cream, new age ice cream, Hindu ice cream, Buddhist ice cream, or Muslim ice cream. But Jesus is one of 31 good flavors and I happen to think he's the best flavor. And if you are just willing to give him a try, I think you'll like Jesus better than what you've got right now. Friends, Jesus Christ is not ice cream. That whole idea is summed up in a bumper sticker that I've seen floating around town. It says, give Jesus a try. If you don't like him, the devil will take you back. How absurd is that? Jesus isn't ice cream. He's insulin. And you die without him. We don't present him as one option among many. Paul presents him as the only option, the only way, the only reprieve from judgment that's to come. So you need to tip over their ice cream and you need to present Christ as insulin. He's not ice cream. We don't ask people to exchange what they've got for another flavor. We ask them to take the insulin because they'll die without it. So let's look at the message. Verse 22. Read it with me. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. He's kind of complimenting them in some way. He's sort of using this as a springboard to present the gospel to them. And he has observed that they are a very religious people. It was said at that time that the Athenians were the most religious people on all of the earth. Why did they say that? Well, do you remember what we covered a couple weeks ago? The city was swamped with idols. Covered with idols. They worshipped everything. There were more gods in Athens than there were people. Every level place had an idol on it. And Paul says, I've observed that you're very religious. And he's not commending that. He's not saying to them that is a good thing. He's simply using that as a springboard to bring them to a knowledge of Christ. And he gives a good illustration of their religiousness. As I was walking through the marketplace, I noticed that you had an idol with the inscription to an unknown God. Now this becomes Paul's springboard to present the gospel to them. He has a launching pad or some sort of common ground that he's addressing them with. I noticed you have an altar. It's to the unknown God. And he's going to use that to bring them to Christ. When we have an Awana event here, and I did this, I think it was two years ago, 
and I'm going to do this again this year, with our Grand Prix where we have the little Pinewood Derby cars that we race on a Friday night. I, I took those and used those as an illustration of something that we create and something that we have as a purpose, and I kind of used the creation of those those uh, wood cars as a springboard to present the fact that God is our creator and we're responsible to him. Everybody's sitting around here, a whole bunch of unsaved non-believers here with all of their kids, and I used the car that they made as some sort of an illustration, as a launching point, some common ground to get to them. We did that with the awards ceremony. All their kids are here to get awards, and the parents come here, and they're waiting for their kid to get rewards. And so I took the idea of reward and showed that in the gospel, we are not rewarded for our good deeds with heaven. Heaven comes by faith, by grace. We're forgiven not by the basis of our deeds. Heaven is not a reward. Heaven is a gift. And I used the idea of reward to, as a springboard to present the gospel. That's why Paul does. I noticed you're religious. The fact that you're so religious that there was an altar even to the unknown God. How did they get altars to the unknown gods? There were ancient writers who had traveled through Athens who made reference to these different altars that existed to the unknown gods. And, and they were erected in, in one of two ways, and sometimes both of these ways. First of all, if they came across an altar that had been broken down and had sort of been destroyed by a war or an invasion or weather or vandalism or something, they would refurbish the altar, but perhaps the inscription had been lost or was in some way illegible, unable to be read. And so not knowing whose altar it was, they would simply put a new inscription on it to the unknown God. They, they don't want to rededicate the altar to a different God, so, but they don't know who the original God is, so they just give it to the unknown God. We don't know who this was. We don't know who it was originally dedicated to. Whoever you are, we don't know you. It's yours again. It's kind of the idea. But second, they were also a very religious people, and they understood that with all of the hundreds of gods that they had built shrines and idols for and temples for, and that they worshipped on a daily basis, even with all of those gods, they did not want to take the chance of offending a god that they had not yet discovered. And being so idol idolatrous, being so polytheistic, they would say to themselves, there must be a God out there who is responsible for the phenomena that we see around us. And we've got gods for the sun and the moon and the stars and the rain and the, and the wind and the earth and the fire and all of these forces and all of these things, but there might be a God out there who is responsible for some of these things that we haven't identified or that we haven't stumbled upon, and we don't want to offend him if he happens to be the one that we have to answer to. So they would build an altar, and this is the, for the God that we do not know. Now, this provides a very convenient springboard for the Apostle Paul because they have admitted their ignorance. And friends, if you do not know a God, you cannot worship Him rightly, can you? John Calvin said, we cannot reverently worship God until He makes Himself known or until we come to know Him. You cannot. And your ignorance, this is what Paul is saying, your ignorance demonstrates that you want to know something, so he capitalizes on their admission of ignorance. The one God, he says, that you've missed You've built an altar to Him. You worship Him as an unknown God. It is this that I proclaim to you, the unknown God. He's not endorsing their worship of an unknown God, but He's using it as a springboard. The God that you don't know, this is the one I want to tell you about. Look at verse 22. So the Apostle Paul says, or verse 23, While I was passing through and examining the object of your worship, I found the altar to the unknown God. What you worship in ignorance, what you do not know, this I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all that is in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. The Apostle Paul says, The God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Now that's kind of an odd place to start a gospel presentation, isn't it, with creation? Doesn't that seem odd? 
Paul, why do you start there? Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say to them, listen, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but sin has separated you from God, and now you need a remedy for that sin, and God has provided a Savior. doesn't do that, does it? He doesn't begin with his testimony. Let me tell you about what Jesus did in my life. And he doesn't begin by talking about all the great things that will come to you if you just become a Christian. Become a Christian and your life will be peaches and roses and cherries and it will be wonderful and blissful and God will give you health and happiness and wealth. He doesn't begin with any of that. What does he begin with? Creation. Now what in the world does that have to do with the message of the cross? What in the world does the creation of the world have to do with the message of a Savior who loved us and died for us? Why doesn't Paul just say, look, Jesus died for you and he wants you to trust him as Savior? Why doesn't he begin with that? There's a very good reason why he doesn't begin with that. And I think it will become obvious as we work our way through this whole concept of the doctrine of creation. Paul says there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of the world and everything in it. And he borrows language from the Old Testament prophets and from the Old Testament scriptures. And this whole idea of creation is foundational to the doctrine of salvation. Because listen, if Genesis 1-1 is not true, then the rest of this is superstitious nonsense. And we have to agree with that. If I cannot trust Genesis 1-1, I have no reason to trust anything between Genesis 1 verse 2 and the end of Revelation. If God is not the Creator of all things, then there is no sin, there is no need for a Savior, and there is no judgment to come, and nobody upholds all things by the word of His power. That's why Paul begins at creation. The Old Testament Scriptures, let me just read for you a few of them so you can get a flavor of how the Old Testament describes the creation of God. Psalm 146, verses 5 and 6, How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob! whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Isaiah 40, verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. Isaiah 45, verse 18, Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Jeremiah 10, verse 12. It is He who made the earth and by His power who established the world by His wisdom and by His understanding He has stretched out the heavens. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. O Lord God, behold, You have made the heavens and the earth and by Your great power and Your outstretched arm nothing is too difficult for You. Zechariah 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within Him. And you know very well that I could go on with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if that's not true, then nothing else is. All the rest of it is superstitious nonsense. Friends, my calling is not to expound upon men's philosophies or men's theologies or men's thinkings or men's ideas or men's discovery or men's science. None of that is my calling. My job is to exposit or to expound or to teach what Scripture says and not to cave to the philosophies and the thoughts and the opinions of men. Having said that, I want to tell you something that may shock you a little bit. I believe in an old earth. I believe that this earth is very old. Old beyond really our ability to truly fathom it. In fact, it may shock you to understand that I believe that the earth is upwards of six. Are you ready for this? Six 
thousand years old. Oh, collective sigh from some of you. Did you expect billions? We can't get our mind around billions, can we? And that's just the way the evolutionist likes it. You know why millions and billions are ejected into this discussion? Only one reason. The evolutionist, the Epicurean, the atheist needs billions of years to make his fairy tale believable. The princess kisses the frog and it becomes a prince right before her eyes. That's a fairy tale. But the same frog becomes a prince over millions and millions of years. All of a sudden it's science. No, it's still a fairy tale. What's the difference? The difference is time. The difference is time. I tell you, a frog became a monkey and became a prince in just a few minutes' time, right before my eyes. You say, who do you think I am? I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. No, no, it happened over millions of years. Oh, well, that's believable. It's not believable. Frogs don't become human beings. Monkeys don't become men. The only difference is time. The difference between the one, what makes a fairy tale and science different? Time. What makes one unbelievable and one believable? Time. When I was in high school, my science teacher told me the earth is five, the universe is five billion years old. I had to put that on the test. And I told him on the test, I don't believe this. But I'm telling you what you told me. You told me it's five billion, so that's the answer to the question, but I don't believe this. Now, I hear that scientists say it's 12 billion years old, the universe. In the 10 years that I've been out of high school, the earth has aged 7 billion years. Do you know why that is? They need more time for the theory to work. They need more time. You can't fit millions of years in Genesis. God has given us a history of the creation of the world, and you either accept it or you don't accept it. You can't read millions of years in between certain verses. You cannot say these represent ages. You cannot say the earth is millions and millions of years old. When God created the world, He did it in six solar days. On the sixth day, man was created, and then women were created, and then God rested on the seventh day, and then there was the fall, and then there was a literal worldwide flood, and then there was the scattering of the nations at the Tower of Babel, then there was the calling of Abraham, and all the way through the first 11, 12 verses of Genesis, we have genealogies that Moses wrote in Genesis in order that we might date the events that occurred. And if you're either going to accept that or you're not. And if you don't accept it, then just throw the whole thing out as superstitious nonsense. So I can either trust what's written, that's never changed, or I can trust the guys in the white coats who say that it's millions and millions and millions and billions of years old, and tomorrow that'll change. And so will their whole thinking and their whole philosophy and their whole theory. It all alters with time because they need more time. When God created the world... He created it, I believe, recently, and I think the world gives evidence and proof that the world cannot be 6 billion or 12 billion years old. God created not only a recent creation, the creation was not only recent, but it was also completely mature. When God created the world, He did not create it a waste place. He created it to be inhabited. He created plants mature. He created animals mature so that they could reproduce after their kind. He produced, he made trees mature and the fish mature and men mature. He created a world with all of the marks of a mature world. You say it looks old. Of course it looks old. Some of you look old. It's because you're mature. And if God created you right now, I would say you look old because I look mature. When God created the world, He created it recently. He created it mature so that it functioned the way he wanted to function, he created a place where men could be and where he could put man. And he created it perfectly. Pristine, perfect, pure. 
No sin, no death, no bloodshed, no violence, no suffering. Pure, pristine, sinless, perfect. So that at the end of the week, God could say, it is very good. All of that was destroyed with Adam. It is that teaching of creation that Paul is affirming before the Athenians when he says to them, God made the world and everything in it. And friends, this goes completely contrary to what they believed. The Epicureans said, no, everything can be explained in terms of natural processes and particles and chemicals and chance and randomness. Paul's saying there is a God who created it. Not a God, but the God who created the heavens and the earth. The Stoics said God is part of everything and He couldn't create Himself. And Paul is saying God is not part of everything. Everything is not God. There was a time when there was no creation and there was a time when God was there and He created it. Just this, um, I think it was a couple Friday nights ago at our Alwana Club, we had a Q&A, a question and answer, Ask the pastor night. One of the questions that came up, one of the questions that was asked was, before God created everything, what was there? God. Who created God? It's a good question. I said, that's a good question. I can't answer that. But nobody created God. He is the uncreated creator. He is the unsustained sustainer. He's uncreated. He has always existed. I know that boggles our mind because we're creatures of time, but that's the truth. Now, does it really matter who created God? If we say, well, everything had a cause, and so we see this big string of effects, and we trace that all the way back to its first cause, and we say, okay, we have arrived at God. Now, who created God? It really doesn't matter. Because you can stand in the presence of God and say, well, I believed in you, or I believed that there's this string of causes, but now who created you? And all God has to say is, it doesn't matter who created me. I created you, and you're accountable to me. It's irrelevant whether he was created or not. He wasn't, but it's irrelevant to the discussion. So Paul says, God created the world and everything in it. Now you would say to me, or the critic would say to me, Jim, that is your religious bias. You only believe in a recent creation. You only believe that God is creator because you are biased religiously toward that position. How do you respond to that? Absolutely I'm biased toward that position. Shocker that you found that out. But let me tell you something that you probably haven't thought of. You're biased toward your position. I have a supernatural bias because I believe this book is true. So I accept it as true. You have an anti-supernatural, epicurean bias. You do not want to admit that God is creator because if he's a creator, then he's a sustainer. And if he's the sustainer, then he's the judge. And in order to get away from the judgment of God, you have to deny the fact that he is the creator. So you are going to take all of the evidence that is presented to you and you are going to interpret it in light of your anti-supernatural, materialistic bias. And you are going to come up with a conclusion, a philosophy, and a theology that explains everything apart from God. And I'm going to take the same evidence and I'm going to look at it through biblical glasses and say, well, my bias tells me that this fits completely perfectly with what Scripture says. So yeah, we both have biases. What does that prove? Absolutely nothing. The question is, were you there in the beginning? to see it happen, and you weren't. And neither was I. So let's just admit that we have the same evidence and we each have our biases. My bias is that I can trust this because it was given by the one who was there when it happened. Your bias is that you can't trust this. And so you reject it as true and try and explain all of life in terms of a philosophy that fits your moral darkness. Both of us are biased. 
You don't want to know why they're biased? Because creation carries with it certain implications. If God is the creator, then he is the owner of everything that he has created. Men don't like that. I don't like to be owned by anything. Sinful man loves darkness rather than light. He does not like the fact that God has ownership claims over his life. I don't like being owned. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, and all of the creatures in it belong to the Lord. Psalm 24, verse 1. If He is the Creator, then He owns everything, and He has ownership claims over you, and He can demand of you certain things. But even more frightening than that is the implication that if God is the Creator of all things, then He is the ruler of all things, which is why Paul says in verse 24, He is the Lord of heaven and earth. If God created all things, then He can do with His creation what He pleases. If you create something in your workshop, you are free to do with what your creation exactly as you please. So you can, God can dispose of His creatures as He sees fit. And He doesn't answer to us. And we cannot thwart it. We cannot object to it. We cannot resist it. If He's the Creator, then He's sovereign. And not only does He own us, but He rules us. And He can do with us as He sees fit. Jonathan Edwards said, The expression implies that it is God's mere will and sovereign pleasure which supremely orders this affair. It is the divine will without restraint or constraint or obligation. The sovereignty of God in His absolute independent right of disposing of all of His creatures according to His own pleasure. Sinful men hate that. I will not be owned and I will not be ruled. And so they're in rebellion to their Creator. Do you know that sin is a denial of the, of the creation of God? It is a denial of God as Creator because you know what it is? Sin is saying, I will not be owned and I will not be ruled. And you have no right to reign over me. I will do as I please. How insane of a creature is it that rebels against the one who created it and loves it and showers it with blessings day by day? And yet all of us sin. And every time we sin, we betray the fact, we betray the fact that we wish it were not so that God was our Creator. We wish it were not so. I will rule myself. I own myself, and I will do with myself what I please. It's a denial of God as Creator. Now, by this point, it should be obvious two things. First of all, why man denies his Creator. And second, why Paul starts with creation. It's odd that he starts with creation, isn't it? Not really. Because he cannot just begin with God as judge, because if he begins with God as judge, it's not going to make any sense at all if they do not know him as creator. Paul has to begin in the beginning. And this is the difference between the sermons that we see in the book of Acts, between Paul's sermons to Jews, the differences that we see in the book of Acts, between Paul's sermons to Jews and Paul's sermons to Greeks. To the Jews, did he have to convince the Jews that God was a creator? Did he have to convince them that God was a sustainer? Did he have to convince the Jews that Scripture was authoritative? That they were sinners? That there had been a fall? That they needed a Savior? No, they were convinced of all of that. They were waiting for the Redeemer. So all Paul had to do in the synagogue was come in and explain to them, this Jesus whom you're, this Redeemer that you're waiting for is Jesus. He fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. And so he could begin with the Savior. 
and the evidence that Jesus is the promised Savior. But with the Greeks, it was all different. They didn't recognize creation or the sustaining of God or His Word as authoritative. And so Paul had to go to the Greeks and he had to lay the foundation. Beginning at creation, he knew, I have to bring these people to the point of understanding that God is their Creator and God is their Sustainer before they'll ever understand Him as Judge. So he begins in the creation of the world. Now what culture do you and I live in? Jewish or Greek? We live in a Greek culture, don't we? But the church has abandoned the truth of creation and the truth of Scripture. And we've said, it doesn't matter what you believe about how you're created, just come to Jesus. Right? We've lowered ourselves to presenting Christ as a flavor of ice cream. Why? Because our culture doesn't understand that He's insulin and that they need the insulin. You want to convince the culture that He's insulin? You have to begin with creation. They will never feel the gravity of judgment until they understand that they have sinned against the Creator. And men don't want to face judgment, so they deny that He is Creator. Verses 30 and 31 of chapter 17. Look at those verses. God is commanding men everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. That's where Paul ends, with judgment. There's judgment coming. But now they have a reason to understand, oh, if there is a Creator, if there is a Sustainer, and we have rebelled against Him and worshipped all of these other gods, then we are guilty before Him. Then they can feel the conviction of the law and the conviction of the Spirit of God because now they understand we have rebelled against the Creator. Now we didn't even get to the fact that God rules everything and we will pick that up next week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the fact that You are our Creator, that You are our Sustainer, and we thank You that even though You are a Judge, You have provided for us an Advocate, a Savior, by which we may escape the judgment that is to come. Thank You for Your love for us and the grace that You shower each and every day upon us by this common grace of creation. We are the recipients as creatures of all of Your love and all of Your goodness and all of Your grace. And it is absolute insanity for us to sin against You, our gracious Creator. Father, we thank You for who You are. We thank You for the grace that is in Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.